The Feminist Press is a partner of Fierce Women Writing. Founded in 1970 and celebrating their 50th anniversary, The Feminist Press seeks to create a world where everyone recognizes themselves in a book. A nonprofit and independent publisher, they support storytelling that ignites movements and inspires social transformation. The Feminist Press lifts up insurgent and marginalized voices from around the world to build a more just future. Learn more about their books at feministpress.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, a podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show, so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, Fierce Writers. Today's guest is Melissa Valentine. Melissa Valentine is a writer from Oakland, California. Her work has appeared in Jezebel, Guernica, Apogee Journal, and others. Her debut memoir, The Names of All the Flowers, was released this month. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Melissa, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? I would say that um, I've never really had ideal conditions. And so whatever your conditions are, you can work with them. Um, for example, I've always worked full time as a writer. Um, so I've maintained a you know 40 hour per week job, plus trying to write a book, finish a book, edit a book, publish a book. You know, that's a lot. Um, and for me, I created my own I- ideal you know, environment, which was doing my writing before doing anything else. That's kind of my practice and like my promise to myself. So I find that when I um, get up in the morning, um, maybe two hours before I need to be up for work um, and take that morning time, that kind of sacred morning time and use it for my writing. Sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes it's just like I'm staring at a blank, you know, screen and the cursor is just like blinking at me and nothing happens. But I think creating that space for yourself, making it a practice, and most importantly, doing it before you do anything for anyone else has really helped me. And that's become sort of like my ideal. I think I'll be working for a long time to come, you know, and so I'm always going to have this struggle of how do I fit in my writing time around my schedule. So that's, that's worked for me to be productive, you know, in spite of working full time. Why do you write? Well, when I wrote my book, and it's funny to say it like when I wrote my book, because it was a span of about seven years, it's not like it happens overnight. It's such a process. You have to first like have the courage to do it at all. And, um, and then, and then do it and constantly face those demons and obstacles in your way. And those sort of like, you know, the self doubt demons, um, along the way. And it's hard work in itself, just having the courage. Um, but I wrote my book because initially, because I was sad. Um, my book deals a lot with grief and, um, losing someone. I lost my brother when I was 16, he was 19 and it was the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to me. And when I started writing, you know, I was in my mid twenties, maybe late twenties and still dealing with grief from when I was 16, you know, and it shows up in different ways in your life and you're kind of constantly dealing with it. And, 
And my book, too, touches on like a greater sense of grief and a collective grief. Um, We've all experienced loss in some way. And for me, my own particular trauma was triggered. You know, every time someone in the media died, every time someone was killed, you know, I felt like it was sort of always present and always wanting me to deal with it. And so I initially started writing because I was just simply sad. And so it was kind of a a self-help tool for me in a way, a spiritual tool for me as well. And um, I I think largely it still is, but now my first book is finished. And so I think my relationship to what I'll write next is probably still going to be that self-help kind of approach, you know, like I'm going to still be working things out within myself and dealing with whatever challenge is facing me. Then it was sadness. It was grief. It was trauma that I needed to talk about. I wrote too, because I write too, because I want to connect. I think it's a way to connect. Um, It's a way to connect to an audience. It's a way for me to connect to other people who feel that same kind of grief, you know, triggering throughout their lives. And yeah, I think it's, it, it's a self-help tool for me. Yeah, largely. What are your best writing tips? Forgetting that there's an audience is really helpful. Trying to write for yourself. Yeah. And just forget about it being good. That's a, you know, it's easier said than done, but you have to just get out of your own way. That's like the biggest tip. And going back to my ideal sort of writing, writing environment, I think doing it before you do anything for anyone else is one of my biggest tips because then it gets done. And, and I don't know if every writer deals with this, but when you're in the middle of writing, when I'm in the middle of writing something, um, I'm always thinking about it. I'm always thinking about how much needs to be done. I'm always thinking about it's not done yet. I'm always thinking about it's not good enough. You're just kind of always dealing with the book when you're writing a book. Um, So I find that working on it, dealing with it, whatever it is at that moment, and just doing that before work, before, you know, seeing friends, before anything else, when you start your day, is just a really powerful way to honor it and just make it a daily practice. And then I'd say to having a community, connecting to a community, and that you can do that by publishing, which of course you know, happens over time and it's going to be smaller publications at first. And then eventually your people find you. It's going to be applying for fellowships and meeting people that way. I met a lot of um, great um, writers at a fellowship in San Francisco at the San Francisco Writers Grotto. And through that, I created a little community of women of color writers. We didn't actually share work with each other. It was more like a community space to just support one another really. And and just kind of offer space. We we hosted in our homes. We would sort of do it potluck style and host in one of our homes every month. And we were just a support to each other. We would talk about like issues we were having with in our books, but we never shared writing. We never read. We never shared work. It was just about like getting through hurdles, um, inspiring each other, supporting each other, telling us about different, you know, fellowships to apply for, different like you should apply for this, and just encouraging each other. I think that's so important is having a community because there's so much internal stuff that's against you, you know. If you're anything like me, it's like you've got the self-doubt going kind of at all times. And that is pretty powerful and you can get swept up in that. And so it's really important to have a community, some people that are going through the same thing as you and can be supportive. What are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block? I guess some of these are going to sound the same, but um, my tip, it's kind of the same as the tip. It's like, stop, stop thinking of your audience. It's just gonna, it's just gonna make the block worse. 
stop thinking that it's not good. Just, there is no good. Just, just like remove that word from your vocabulary. I think just like doing the work and accepting however it looks, that's okay. That's part of the process. So I think like just accepting that even a block is part of the process because even a block is you working something out. It's you grappling with fear. It's you grappling with self-doubt. It's you grappling with something. Um, And even that is work. I find that even when I'm like thinking about like what I should have done or those kinds of like thoughts that feel not productive, but I feel like they're all part of the process. So honor that too. Um, And then I think another sort of more tangible one is um, just write something else. You know, if you're working on a book or a story and you're feeling a block, do something that's more fun, you know, just stop doing it and write a poem or, you know, just do something where you can sort of loosen your hand and just have a little bit more fun. What about editing and revising tips? I would say a tip for editing and revising, be careful who you share your work with. Um, be careful how many voices and, and opinions you get in your work. Um, trust yourself. I think part of the writing process is learning to trust yourself because you do know what you're doing. I got my MFA and part of the MFA is, you know, sharing your work with a workshop and getting feedback and not all of it's great. Some of it's good. Some of it's okay. Some of it you disregard, you know, and you have to sort of like learn what voices you want to help guide you and what voices to, you know, reject. And that's a powerful part of the editing process. And I think once you get a little bit further along, you know, you have a full draft. Really think about who you trust and who you want to share that with and whose opinion would matter to you. That's a really important piece of early stage editing, I would think. And also, um, I think so much magic happens in revision. And just to know that as you're writing your first draft um, or your second draft, whatever draft you're on, just know that you're just getting it down. And it's in revision where, you know, structure develops, where you start to really understand what does this mean? Like, why am I telling this story? Who cares? That's where you start to really get in there. And so I'd say share it with a select few, trust yourself, and just know that there's going to be more revision. Can you estimate your submission to publication ratio? No way. I don't think about it at all. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, that question just like makes me feel terrified. No, I try not to think about it. Honestly, I've I've had a lot of rejection, but I have my book publishing, you know, and so that's all I need. That's what all this has been for. You know, this whole journey has led me to this moment of like being able to share my book with the world. And so it doesn't matter how many rejections you get. I don't keep track. I'm not the writer that like posts my rejection letters on the wall. I just... They bring me no joy. <laughs> I just want to forget that part of the process and focus on the good things, honestly. Who are some other women writers we should be reading right now? There's some that come to mind, just um, people that have personally touched my work. Zora Neale Hurston is a classic, and I read her book, her autobiography, Death Tracks on a Road, when I was in college. So it was a while back, but that's my favorite work of hers, and so definitely read that. For me, it was sort of like, it helped me imagine and create the environment for the Southern part of my story. A lot of my story takes place in in Alabama, where my mom is from. And so when I read her autobiography, I actually felt transported to my mother's hometown. 
And yeah, I mean, books can totally transport us. So that book was really kind of monumental in helping me even like think about writing about the South. And she's just so brilliant. Another writer is Dorothy Allison. Bastard Out of California was a huge influence to me. So definitely read her. And then um, Robin Cost Lewis comes to mind. She is a brilliant poet. She Her first book of poetry won the National Book Award a few years ago. Um, her book... Her book of poetry, it's called The Voyage of the Sable Venus. Such a great book. I always read poetry. It's so helpful in my writing. This book sort of deals with themes of Black women's bodies and art. But I didn't actually feel that when I read it. I think so much of reading and just like experiencing literature is what it personally means to you. And when I read this book, it really helped me open up parts of my book and it really spoke to like kind of deep-seated grief and sadness in myself that I needed to put in my book in a really sort of clear way. It, it helped clarify some things for me. So poetry, for me, poetry really helps to helps my writing. In fact, I use it as a writing prompt to sort of open me up and get me going often. And then I want to share another book by Clarice Lispector. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name right. She's a Brazilian writer. The book um, that really touched me was The Passion According to G.H. And this is the weirdest book I've ever read. It's sort of mystical. It's a novel about a woman kind of contemplating a cockroach. And really, it's about contemplating life, contemplating your work, contemplating the world. And it's so much bigger than that. And I think I mentioned before, I write kind of as a self-help practice in a way. And I read in the same way. I think all of these books and, and every book that I read is sort of like feeding some part of me that I need to work through. And so, yeah, all of these books did that for me in some way or another. And where can listeners find you online? You can find me on Instagram, Melissa C. Valentine. You can find me on Twitter. I am Melissa V. Or you can check out my website, melissavalentine.com. Melissa, would you read some of your work for us now? Yeah. I'm going to read a passage. Um, I just want to say a couple things first. The narrator is seven years old. Um, Her brother is 11. And we are attempting to break in, in quotes, to our neighbor's house while they're away on vacation. Today I follow Junior up the street to Josh and Julia's house. It is yet another attempt to entertain ourselves while school is out. This act of breaking in seems benign. We have nothing and they have everything. It is an act of justice. And as the smallest person in my family, I am thrilled just to be invited, to be in the presence of my cool big brother, who does not consider authority or consequence, who knows only desire. We walk past Mr. Kramer's, who yells curse words at dad when his things spill over into his side of the yard. Ladders, hoses, plants, empty pots, rusty cans of fertilizers, bags of soil, garbage, and smelly bags of compost. Some mornings you can hear crashing and Mr. Kramer out there yelling, fucking asshole, Chris, and goddamn you, Chris. Julia and Josh's house is covered in wooden shingles. Their garden is neat with a lawn and manicured camellia bushes. Purple wisteria drapes the front porch and a brand new blue Volvo is parked in the driveway. Junior heads straight for the side yard that's blocked by a white fence we'll have to climb. Junior makes it look look easy. He takes a running start and then, like some kind of ninja, boosts himself up and over the fence. Come on, he says from the other side. I place one of my bare feet on the water spigot. 
on the side of the house, the one their neatly coiled garden hose is attached to. I get a grip on the fence and hurl the other leg over, leaving my body teetering at the top. I don't ask for help. The last thing I want is to be a nuisance and no longer be asked to accompany him on adventures like this. But before I get the chance to struggle, Junior's warm hands pull at my leg, guiding me down to the ground. By the time I can dust myself off, he's already ahead of me, trying the key in the back door. What if someone's home? What if an alarm goes off and the police come? My mind moves to all these places quickly, but the door opens easily because we have the key. But for me, the little one, the goody-two-shoes, the budding voyeur, I both am afraid of getting in trouble and can't look away. The blinds that cover the glass door shiver as we race inside the house. The kitchen is the first room. I half expect their fluffy poodle to come running up to us, like she always does, but then I remember we are alone. Once inside, we immediately start looking for treasures. I am struck by the absence of my friend. No one is home, just a humming presence of their objects, neatly placed and cared for. I follow Junior to the pantry. Jackpot, he yells, and we fill our arms with as many squeezes and fruit roll-ups as we can hold. After we've ransacked the pantry for food, we search the rest of the house. My adrenaline is rushing from the feeling of emptiness around us, from the potential risk of being caught. But the possibility of all this being ours is even more intoxicating. We skip over the living room and the dining room, head upstairs to the kids' rooms, and slit up. Romantic paintings of female silhouettes with red lips and coal-lined eyes cover the walls of the stairwell and seem to watch me as I make my way to Julia's room. I look down for tracks made by my potentially dirty feet. I am careful not to leave a trace of myself. Julia's room is at the top of the stairs and to the left. Junior goes to Josh's on the right. Julia's room is full of light. A skylight on the ceiling of her loft bedroom brings in a beam of light filled with sparkling, magical dust particles. The room smells plastic, and a faint smell of sunscreen hangs in the air. It feels strange without her there. I climb the wooden ladder that leads to the loft where I know all the Barbie stuff is, put away in storage bins. The heat has risen, and it feels as if I'm floating in a warm spaceship. I look outside the window and peer into the backyard, imagining this is my bedroom. This is my garden. I think of Julia, her pale, freckled nose, and feline face. This is the room where we play. I open the container of Barbie clothes. I've seen them all before, and I lay out the ones I want. The cheerleading outfit, the ball gown, the nurse uniform. They lie there on the carpet next to her pink princess bed. The sun from the skylight envelops me. Sitting on my knees, I study the outfits I've chosen. The silence makes itself known. I can't even hear Junior in the other room. Only my thoughts. What must he be doing? Has he found anything good? What does it mean to be people who steal from their friends? I become aware that we are stealing. My homemade Barbie clothes await me on the front steps, and these beautiful ones stare at me, asking me to take them. But I no longer want them. For a moment longer, I stay in the warmth, surrounded by the nice outfits and frilly floral bed and the soft carpet. I like it here, and I let myself enjoy being in the space before putting the clothes back and heading downstairs, heading down the ladder to find Junior. Junior is excitedly looking at baseball cards. I turn my back to him and look out the glass door that opens to a balcony and overlooks the garden and swing set. I stand near the glass door, wanting to be in the presence of this luxury. I attempt to inhabit it, 
until Junior is ready to go. We finally head back downstairs, both empty-handed, to where the real goodies wait for us in the kitchen. We are done here. Thank you for sharing your writing and wisdom with us today, Melissa. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for six or eight minutes, putting Melissa's prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. I want to share with you my absolute favorite prompt. I tend to be very simple when it comes to getting started writing or getting through a block. Um, And I learned this in grad school and I've been using it ever since. It's super helpful and it's very simple. Basically, you can read any piece of literature that you have, any book you might be reading at the moment or a book that you think you should be reading. Sometimes books that are like a little bit harder and more dense, we tend to, you know, put aside. Um, Read anything, read a poem, read a book of poetry. Poetry helps me immensely with my writing. Um, And as part of your writing practice, you know, sit in your seat, sit in your desk, um, get to work and read a passage, read maybe two pages of whatever it is. It can be anything. And just let that inspire you. Just let it be really organic and let it sort of take you away. And I find that it really opens me up and I can be really inspired by that writing, the piece of writing, by the language, um, by whatever's happening in the scene. It can be random. doesn't matter. Just kind of let it take you. And for me, I've used this as a practice to continue to write whatever I'm working on. So if I'm just in the middle of a scene, you know, I'll read a passage and then go straight to my scene. And it's really interesting what can happen when you let another voice, um, when you let language kind of affect your writing in that way and just jump right into whatever you're working on. I think it's super helpful for opening us up. That excerpt that Melissa Valentine read from The Names of All the Flowers really grabbed me. I remember so clearly that feeling of coveting the riches of a friend, and Melissa captured it so well. Her memoir, The Names of All the Flowers, was just released this week. It explores growing up mixed race in Oakland, being part of a family fractured by the school-to-prison pipeline, and losing her brother. I know we're all looking to read more books by Black authors right now, and this is a good one to order. Melissa's words, do the writing before doing anything else, are echoing in my head after this interview. My life would be drastically different if the first thing I did every day was write. Before working, before groceries or cooking or caring for my loved ones, what if I wrote first instead of last? I have to be honest, now that I spend so much time talking about writing and teaching writing and making this podcast, I'm not actually writing very much myself. I'm inspired, but also a little scared to put my writing at the top of my list of priorities and see what happens. But I'll report back next week and let you know. If listening to the podcast has been helpful in your writing practice, please consider becoming a supporter on my website. With a recurring monthly contribution of as little as $2, you can help me ensure that these interviews continue to happen. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Woman Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, Keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at Fierce Women Writing. Remember, women is spelled with an X. 
You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.